This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. In today's episode, we're speaking to David Field, Chief Legal Counsel at Canon. David has followed a unique path to get to where he is today. Starting out his career in Taiwan, David eventually returned to Sydney and roles in private practice. But after jumping to an in-house role with Telstra and staying there for 19 years, it's safe to say he'd never looked back. Today, you'll hear how David found himself in Taiwan in the first place, about his love for robotics and coding, and how he sees the role of in-house counsel changing in the future. Okay, let's dive in. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. I'm really interested, really, to start off by getting to know you a bit better. And I understand that after studying in Australia, you actually started your legal career in Taiwan. How did that happen? So my first degree was, I did a double degree at ANU. My first degree was Asian studies. So I was doing a combined degree with law and and Asian studies at the same time, majoring in modern Chinese at the end of the Asian studies degree before I graduated. And so three years into the the law degree, I saw an ad at the law school for a paralegal role with Mallison's in Taiwan and applied for that. So wound up spending the next sort of two and a bit years working in for, for Mallison's in, in their Taiwan office. Wow, what an amazing experience that would have been. What a way to start your legal career. It was truly amazing. I mean, it really was. It was pretty darn tough. The managing partner there was an Australian guy who had done his Chinese in Beijing during the Cultural Revolution. So he was pretty hardcore and, and sort of worked on the basis that we weren't going to be living an expat life. If we were there, we were there because we loved it and wanted to be there. So it was pretty darn tough. I expect nonetheless exciting and challenging. So you started obviously in private practice. Tell me, what drew you to in-house? I think I would tell anyone that my move to in-house was a lifestyle choice gone wrong. I was working for Mallison's in Sydney, billing 100-hour weeks on occasions, living in the same house as my wife, sleeping in the same bed, but, you know, sort of would get through a week and not have seen her awake. Came to the conclusion that if I kept doing that, I was going to wind up dead and or divorced. And, you know, I needed to do something different. I needed to sort of try and claim back more control of my life. So Telstra was a major client of of Mallison's at that stage. An opportunity came up for a secondment across to Telstra. I went on secondment to Telstra and basically never came back to to Mallison's. So, you know, we ended up uh, becoming an employee. Critically there, I think the reason I describe it as a lifestyle choice gone wrong is that I arrived at Telstra, you know, no one had your phone number, no one had your email address and, you know, everything was fine. Probably within about three months, I was right back where I'd started in terms of, you know, ridiculous, uncontrollable hours. And I think that was a powerful experience for me around realizing that, uh, you know, it actually wasn't the job, it was me. Any job worth doing will get out of control if you let it. Yeah, that's, I think, a really interesting reflection. And you're quite right. A lot of in-house counsel, particularly, I think these days, it's not about lifestyle and inverted commas. It's about the job and wanting to be in-house, which I think is a wonderful motivator. So you currently work at Canon. Can you tell me a little bit about your role there? I've been here for just on five years. So I was at Telstra for, uh, for 19 years in the end. So I came across as Chief Legal Counsel, and so I still have that as one of my titles. 
also company secretary. I am now also the director of people and finance. Obviously, quite a fair way out of the comfort zone. You know, I guess as a lawyer, you're used to being, you know, sort of trained within an inch of your life in relation to the law. And it's interesting to be doing the finance and HR roles, you know, to a large extent based on experience. That's a really broad portfolio that you have there. And obviously, a great testament to your leadership skills to have moved from chief legal counsel and COSEC into that very broad portfolio. But you do have a very strong tech background, obviously, having come from 19 years at Telstra and then into Canon. And I understand you have a really strong interest in AI. So I'd be keen to hear a bit more about your thoughts on the role of AI in the in-house counsel world. What do you see AI doing in the future for us in in in-house counsel roles? The angle or the direction I would be most interested in taking that is probably not so much crystal ball gazing because I think I'm probably old enough to know how bad I am at forecasting. I think, you know, the reality never quite plays out exactly the way that you expected. The angle that I'm I'm probably sort of most interested in talking about at the moment is really probably just dabbling in aspects of robotics myself. So one of my lockdown projects has actually been moving into coding, actually trying aspects of robotics myself. It actually started because my wife was struggling with a booking system for classes that she was doing where there were you know, sort of limited spaces in the classes. So they were opening the classes at midnight one week before the class and with capacity limits. And, and then classes were all going within minutes. You know, so she was having to stay up till midnight and make the bookings. I, whether it was wisely or not, sort of said, I think you really should be able to automate something like that. You know, leave it with me and I'll see what I can do. And then that's led off on a couple of tangents. And so I have made a couple of Twitter bots. As a result of that, actually then moved into bots for the purposes of searching websites and you know collecting information from websites. Where I'm sort of going with this is actually it's really given me some interesting and kind of powerful insights in relation to what I do as a lawyer. And I think so much of the problem with lawyers is that we tend to think of ourselves as artisans or craftspeople. Oh, no one could possibly codify what I do or no one could possibly automate what I do because it's also, you know, sort of magical and mystical and I can't really describe it. And I think generally that's just because we're too lazy to actually be able to describe at a process level what it is that we do. And, and probably we're too arrogant to think that it could be reduced to a process. And so it's been really powerful for me to be working with automation of processes where I, I will find myself throwing hours at solving a problem. You work through the problem, you start to say, actually, you know, I think I'm doing this, 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 and this, and this. And I think I can actually code for that. And then all of a sudden, when the issue hits a certain threshold of, the time that was going to be taken up in the task, it's worthwhile to invest time in building automation to solve it. It's amazing how problems start out as things that you couldn't possibly describe or automate. And then by thinking about it a little bit harder, you realize, actually, this is just an algorithm. This is just a process and I can solve it this way. The other really interesting thing that it's thrown up for me is the sense of what the machines are good at, what robots are good at and what the humans are good at and what you, you know, sort of how you actually work in partnership. I would describe what I'm doing there as being AI. It is very much, it's robotics. There's no, you know, sort of intelligence happening. But at the same time, you're, you know, you're using the robot to solve the grunt problems, you know, the scale problems. And then you're adding the insight and the judgment on on top of that to make it all worthwhile. I do want to delve more into, you know, what can we use in our day-to-day roles, some of these robotics that you mentioned. 
But first of all, you need to, excuse my ignorance, tell me, what is a Twitter bot? I love my photography. I guess normally you would think of Instagram as perhaps being a, a much more visual format. Instagram probably sort of focuses on the image with often quite a lot of words, but the, but the image is the focus. Twitter is 280 words. And this particular Twitter bot is actually, because it was essentially a proof of concept, it's actually publishing historical photos from Taiwan. A couple of the reasons for doing that. One is I love Taiwan. I love imagery. I love, you know, sort of, I guess, the significance of imagery and sort of how imagery works in the context of imagery. But this bot at the moment, every four hours will pull down an image from a collection that other bots that I've made have assembled. And then we'll publish that image with a caption, which at least says where the image came from. And if I've done more work on it, we'll actually provide some context in relation to what that image is. So basically, whatever else I'm doing, even when I'm asleep, the bot is randomly pulling down images and publishing them. I'm presuming that once you got that up and running, you also solved your wife's problem. Yes. It's a bit hair-raising because obviously I do not want her to wake up in the morning and find out that the bot has crashed and has missed her booking. So yeah, it is a bit hair-raising. I would like to do a lot more kind of you know, user acceptance testing to, to, to make sure it's bulletproof. By and large, it's working. So I'd like to bring the conversation back, David, to these automation and robotics and the use of that in the in-house council role. So you said that, you know, as you started to explore this idea, you could see more and more applications for it in your work. So what do you think this means for in-house councils going forward as some of these tasks or processes are able to be done by robotics? I think... We need to really challenge ourselves in relation to what aspects of what we do really are that mystical or magical and what actually are algorithmic. That's almost changed the way that in my other roles as sort of the, the finance and HR role, I actually watch myself as I'm doing approvals you know, for various things, for, you know, for recruitment or various other things. I actually look and see, well, you know, what were you testing here? What were you testing there? What were you testing there? What is your algorithm for this? Are you now in a position to delegate that and basically say, as long as, as, long as it ticks these criteria, you can now do this. So you know, that process around how we think about what we're doing, I think that's very useful for lawyers. I think challenging yourself to stop and think about, is there as much magic in this as I thought? Does this really require me? And then what is the unique value add that I provide here? And my very strong view is that by and large, the, you know, the unique human value add, it is the higher order skills around empathy, creativity, opportunity, insight. And that's really what machines can't do as well. They can certainly do a wonderful job of, you know, identifying patterns or crunching a large volume of data to draw out insight. But I still think the, you know, the human magic there, and particularly for lawyers, your clients probably don't actually care a lot about law. Your clients aren't there to practice law. But if you can provide them insights in relation to their business, things about their business that they didn't know because you're looking at it from a different angle, that's incredibly powerful. If you can generate opportunities for them that they didn't know existed, that's incredibly powerful. And so, you know, thinking about where is my life being taken up with large volumes of rote tasks, routine tasks, how am I able to solve them increasingly with other mechanisms or with technology to free me up for those higher order tasks so that you can surprise and delight your clients by, you know, all of a sudden telling them something about their business that, that they didn't know. 
They think every day about their business, and yet you, the boring lawyer, have been able to say, did you know that this is happening in your business? And did you think that if you change this, you might be able to capture more revenue? Did you realize that you're leaking revenue here? I mean, that all sounds incredibly exciting, David. And as you say, you know, to be able to create that space so that you can provide insights and more opportunities for the business. I I think you're completely right. It's one of the value adds that in-house counsel can bring. I'd like to come back to that creativity concept at work shortly, but maybe for our listeners, it'd be good if you are able to share one example of where you've used automation that has resulted in the ability to generate new ideas or create more opportunities for the business or for the in-house counsel. Let's say if I was a private equity business doing a large volume of due diligence work, or if I was an insurance company doing a large volume of litigation work, then it would be worth my while to be investing in robotic due diligence or automated due diligence or robotic discovery. And probably, generally speaking, we're a very generalist business doing a little bit of everything. You know, generally speaking, we don't have the scale to invest in those sorts of systems. But the mindset really is one around just constantly looking at what am I actually doing here Am I in a position to delegate? And so, for example, you know, how can we increasingly codify the things that we're doing so that we can pass them to our contracts team? We also run a a business process outsourcing business. We've got over a thousand people in the Philippines. And and so, you know, for example, using some of the people in the Philippines, for example, to to handle some of the more routine tasks that we're doing to to free us up for the higher order engagement with uh, with the business. And I think, yeah, you make a really good point there, David, because it's not about having some sort of massive digital team that's producing AI or bots for you, that in fact, you can get some of these benefits through simply looking at your processes and, you know, what can you streamline and systematize and get those benefits without having to develop the bot. I think that's right. And so yeah, I don't want you to sort of, you know, think that I'm sort of sitting here, you know, not able to lift a finger, sort of surrounded by, by robots. Um, <laughs> well, no, you are. I can see that. You are surrounded by bots doing your work. Doing aspects of my work. The key point I think really is constantly thinking about how much magic actually is there in what I'm doing. Am I thinking hard enough about what the process is? Can I extract myself? You know, can I push that down to someone else, be that a less expensive human or a machine? And then what should I be looking for? And let me sort of dwell on the empathy bit. You know, I think all too often professionals, and I'll include lawyers there, but I think, you know, many, many professionals, accountants, they just keep doing what they've always done. They keep just doing what they, what they were trained to do. And I, I think the, the empathy point is so important around don't just deliver the same product. Listen to this client. Listen to this person in front of you. Listen to this human being in front of you. What are they really worried about? Read the body language. Read the subtext. What's going to add the most value to this person. Yes, exactly. I think, as you say, empathy. And I think you've used the word creativity a few times as well when talking about your work and maybe not a a word that you would always necessarily associate with areas like legal and finance. But I understand in addition to being creative at work, you're actually a photographer yourself. You mentioned that earlier that you'd created your Twitter bot because of your love of photography in Taiwan, bringing that together. Can you tell me a little bit about that side of your life? So I have been a photographer for well over 40 years. 
I got my first camera when I was eight, saved up my pocket money and bought a camera. The throwaway line I use there is, and have taken a vast quantity of very bad photos since that day. Photography has been fantastic for me as, you know, just an excuse to be out observing, watching the world, trying to see things that other people don't see. And then, you know, just, just a love affair with the world in relation to how interesting and intricate the world can be. Creativity aspect, I do tend to think in terms of metaphors and analogies in relation to, you know, okay, so how does this relate to that? What can I learn from this that I can I can use over there? The latest project that we've got running called Laws of Creativity, and it's a collaboration that I've got with Thomas Caldor, formerly of, uh, of Legal Vision. Tom does the writing and I do the photography and we take studio portraits of lawyers with a strong creative aspect to them and we interview them in that process as we're taking the photos you know we, we pick one of the, the portraits and then feature that with a, a write-up that tom does off the back of the, the interview in the course of taking the photos and it's just taken us in some some fantastic direction tom does a marvelous job of the writing where he each write-up rather than being a, like a transcript or a, or a bio is really a mini essay on an aspect of creativity and how it relates to the law. So I think mine is on, you know, sort of perfectionism and falling short. A a fascinating sort of journey of discovery for me to realize that I am a perfectionist in my photography and that that drives me crazy, but I'm able to somehow let that go in relation to the law because I know that the perfectionism will paralyze me. And so I've got to the point where I'm able to do a good enough job for what this issue deserves and move on. And, you know, it's just fascinating. I can still see the perfectionism in relation to how I approach photography, but somehow I've been able to let it go in relation to the law and say, you know what, that's an ugly job. You know, it does what's needed here and we can move on. That's just a really interesting insight. And then lots of interesting aspects around, for example, we've had a lot of stand-up comedians, artists, and even a, a skydiver. That's certainly an amazing array, David. One aspect that's been really valuable is actually really reinforcing the value of collaboration. It's great where, you know, you're working in partnership with someone in a collaboration. Obviously, there are concessions that you need to make and compromises you need to make to work with someone and to sort of share a collaboration with someone like that. But it really pays off in relation to, you know, I guess in the first place, being accountable to someone around having to deliver for them, but then also just the way they take you places you would not have gone by yourself. So Tom's personality is very different to mine. You know, so he's he's very, very good at this wheeling and dealing at that, you know, sort of pulling in the subjects and, you know, reaching out to people we barely know to say, hey, would you like to come and do a portrait? That's, you know, sort of actually made me stop and think about the value of those collaborations and actually how you use those with people around you how you work with people to pull yourself out of your comfort zone. That's been really interesting. What a fantastic skill to have in terms of, as you say, not only collaborating with people, but actually being able to bring people in to the fold. How do you see that, I guess, playing out in the in-house environment? And do you think it's important for in-house councils to be creative in their roles? I think it is. And very much the premise of the project is that we're not about highlighting and grandstanding creative lawyers of like, oh, look, over here's a creative lawyer, you know, let's sort of shine the spotlight on them. It's more that we actually want to say creativity is normal and, you know, it's essential. And actually, if you want to do your legal job well, you actually do need to be creative. It's not just, you know, sort of the application of a rule book. It's actually stopping and thinking about, you know, sort of additional connections there And probably let me throw back to, you know, I guess what I was saying about the unique human value add is around coming up with solutions that 
surprise and delight your clients where you help them do things that they didn't even know they necessarily wanted to do or, you know, but it's an amazing opportunity or you solve problems in ways that just blow people's minds away. I think I sort of talk about how often with new clients who've had a bad experience with lawyers, you know, you can sort of see that kind of, you know, reserve on them and you can see that they sort of decided that I better not tell them too much because otherwise they'll clutter up my life and stop me from doing the things I need to do. I actually kind of enjoy when you you meet those people because like I said, it as my objective. I want to get to the point in the conversation where I see their eyes go wide, where they see an opportunity that they didn't think was possible. That's not going to happen in the first conversation, but I'm searching for that in the relationship where, you know, and it is actually quite wonderful where you sort of see their eyes go wide. Like, this is cool. This is cool. I didn't know we could do this. I didn't know that was possible. That's part of the value. You're, you know, you're constantly thinking about their business, thinking about things you're seeing about their business, thinking about their perspective on the business and saying, I don't think they're aware of this. And there's an opportunity here if we fix that or if we make that different. They're leaking revenue. Did they know they're leaking revenue? Let's ask them. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, it's like, I don't have to go out and sell for this. Here's revenue that I'm not actually collecting that's perfectly available under my contracts. Why did I not know that? And such a tangible example, and as you say, it really brings you back to where we started the conversation around robots and the role of automation in our lives as in-house counsel. And really what I'm hearing is that it frees us up to be creative and to find those opportunities or those new ideas. So it's, I think, a fantastic call to action to all of us as in-house counsel to think about our roles in that way. We might take a little small change of pace here. I've got a couple of questions that I want to throw at you. And if you can just give me your first thought. I'm braced. I'm braced. <laughs> Good. If you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Probably stop planning and just get on with it, actually. It's not going to play out as you expect. I think just watch for the opportunities and grab them. I don't think any of my plans have actually <laughs> played out. It's all been unexpected opportunities. Grab them, run with them. I think great advice, not just for your 21-year-old self, but really throughout your career. What's the one skill you've really had to develop through your in-house role? Probably people management, also numeracy and, and financial skills. You know, I think they're so important in relation to, you know, actually really understanding what's happening. We're trained it within an inch of our lives as legal professionals. The more progressed you get, you wind up being a manager as an amateur, just solely based on experience. And I think whenever you think you've solved it with people, you're basically just cruising for a bruising. You've, you've missed something. People management is hard. It is, isn't it? Human relationships are hard and you've got to keep working at them. Tell me, where do you go to upskill? Where do I get upskill? I guess because I've got a wide variety of roles, so much of it actually really is, I guess, on the job and paying attention. I'm an enormous advocate of the value of curiosity. To my detriment, I am an intensely curious person, and that sort of means that I, I get dragged off on, on tangents all the time. But in some ways, that's good because what's happening there? I, what, what does that mean? I don't understand that. And you know, you're just drawn to digging into it and, and working out what it means. I think curiosity is such a wonderful quality to have, something that you can take with you wherever you go, no matter what you're doing. Who's someone you really admire? I'm not big on hero worship, but someone like Barack Obama, and that doesn't sound like a terribly exciting or surprising choice, but, but someone like Barack Obama, I think integrity is just so important. And he felt like someone to me who was so human, so compassionate, so understanding and you know, so felt like someone who just had bucket loads of integrity. And, you know, I think that sense of, of, you know, kind of going through life, wanting to leave the world a better place, 
is so important. You know, and I think just, you know, that sense of ethics in relation to what you do and knowing that you will break things and damage things on the way through, but desperately wanting not to, desperately trying to do the right thing and desperately trying to, as I said, leave the world a better place, I think is really important. I totally agree, David. What's one item on your bucket list? I did say to someone last week that there was one thing that actually was on my bucket list, and that was going to see Falling Waters in Pennsylvania designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. So I'm I'm not really a, an architecture aficionado, but that looks like a really beautiful building in a beautiful location, and I, I would love to see that. Now that the borders are opening, you might be able to tick it off. <laughs> going back to Taiwan first. So what's your favourite hobby? Photography. So I would Ta-da. absolutely describe, <laughs> I would describe <laughs> myself as being a, um, an absolutely fanatical photographer. And, you know, I just I spend a lot of time thinking about it and, you know, sort of thinking about what it means and, you know, preparing for it and planning it and practising it, anticipating it and regretting it and, you know, throwing stuff away and, and you know, trying it again. I would call that actually a passion from yeah. the way you talk about it. No, I spend a lot of time with the camera in my hands. Tell me, what are you reading at the moment? I can't remember the name of the author, which is unfortunate, but I'm reading a novel called Overstory, which is a really interesting novel. It's about mankind's relationship with nature and how we typically use and abuse nature. It's fiction. Yeah, really, really scientifically oriented and just really powerful in relation to how you think about your role. And, you know, I guess I, I you know, love my hiking and love my photography and spend a lot of time out in the forest. So that was, it really resonated for me. Very topical at the moment. So finally, what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? I am a very boring, habit-driven person. I have boiled eggs for breakfast every morning as a result of having been through a health thing a few years ago. So I actually had to lift my um, sort of, you know, protein levels and I actually get up and put the eggs on while I'm having my shower. Sounds like a healthy start to the day. Hope so. So thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I feel like we've covered an enormous amount of ground, but it all seems to relate to the in-house role, which is fantastic. And you've made me really think about that role and how we can still do our jobs while being creative and passionate. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to In-House Insiders a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learnt by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time.